Uh, so this is me in eighth grade, friends, right there. There it is. There it is. Uh, I just want to point out a couple things. The reason that I'm showing you this picture is because it was about this time in eighth grade when I got my very first girlfriend. Now, I know you're like, well, that's shocking that it would take that long for a guy that handsome to get a girlfriend, but it's true. Uh, I do want to point out a couple of uh, amazing things. I'm rocking some OG Air Force Ones, friends. I've got a sweet St. John's starter jacket on. Amazing, which is also apropos because it is St. John that's going to be teaching us some things about Jesus this morning. And I'm also rocking my Flint Journal paper bag that that tells you that the boy had a little coin to do well with the ladies, all right? I'm just, just saying, okay? So it's eighth grade. I'm at school, Longfellow Middle School, Flint, Michigan, and I spy Carla Lopez. Carla was in seventh grade. Carla was very cute. I had no game, though. I didn't know how to talk to a lady. I didn't know what to say to a lady. I'd never had a girlfriend before. But I was hoping that she would become my girlfriend. Now, uh, I was too afraid to actually talk to her. So I asked a friend if they could find out if Carla might like me. And when I heard through the grapevine that she might, and she knew that I might like her, I said to my friend, because I was, again, too afraid to ask her myself, would you get her number for me. Now, y'all got to remember something, okay? We didn't have cell phones back then. We're talking landlines connected to actual cords that went into a wall, all right? People didn't have their own cell phone. So I got her number. I was so excited. I was so nervous. I hadn't even talked to her yet, but I'm going to call her up. I get home, dial up the phone. Uh, I went down to the basement because that's where we had a landline. But the thing with landlines is like somebody upstairs could have easily just picked it up and listened in. Like that's how those things used to work. I didn't know who was going to answer her phone, though. Didn't know if it was going to be your dad. Didn't know if it was going to be your mom, maybe a sister. But I call the number, and Carla picks up. So I say, hey, Carla, how's your day? And she says, um, good. Who is this? (laughs) And I'm like, oh, uh, it's Tori, because that's everybody called me back then. I'm like, it's Tori. And she's like, oh, hi, Tori. And we talk, but I don't know what to say. So I had already asked her how her day was. That was like my one question. Like, that's all I had, okay? I didn't know what else to say. So finally, after like this really awkward conversation that probably lasted like a minute, I said to her, so Carla, I was wondering, would you go with me? Because that's what we said in the 80s, all right? You didn't say, would you go out with me? You didn't say, would you be my girlfriend? We said, would you go with me? Where were we going? No idea. But wherever it was, we were going to go there together, okay? So I said, would you go with me? She said, and I quote, "Uh, maybe give me a minute. Excuse me? So she hung up with me. No joke. I'm sitting there like, what am I supposed to do now? I don't really know. I wait for what feels like 
five or six days, which is probably two or three minutes. And then the phone rings again, and I quick pick it up before any of my other brothers or sisters or my mom or dad pick it up. And it's Carla, and she says, okay, I can go with you now. I said, awesome, so we're going together now. And she said, yes. And I said, that's great. I'll see you tomorrow. And we hung up the phone. What I didn't realize is that uh, when I first called her, she was actually going with another friend of mine. And so she had to call him and break up so then she could call me back and we could go together. So that was pretty epic and awesome. I learned that about a week later. Now, uh, like I said, I had no game, no zero game. I I was afraid to talk to her. I literally found, uh, three days later, a gold chain on the sidewalk, and I wanted to give it to her as a gift. So I put it inside. (laughs) It's so bad. I put it inside an envelope with her name on it. No note, no message, no letter, no nothing, just a gold chain in an envelope with her name on it, and I put it in her locker. I didn't even give it to her. I was too afraid. She's literally walking towards me, sees me with the envelope, and I'm stuffing it in her locker, and I turn around and walk away. All right? When you're going together at Longfellow Middle School, you usually sit together at lunch and eat. I wouldn't do that. Too afraid. You also would walk around the block of the school. Heck no, I wasn't going to do that. Way too afraid. So I realized I'm probably the world's worst boyfriend, and she's going to dump me. So I called her about a week and a half after we first started going together, and I broke up with her just because I knew she was going to break up with me. Awesome story. I tell it because many of you can remember the first time that you fell in love, right? That first crush the feelings, the emotions. I remember being so nervous when I got her number, so afraid my heart was just pounding when I'm dialing it the first time. I mean, I can still remember the first time that I saw Brenda when I was in college. I can remember the first time that I met her. I can remember the first time that we held hands. It was because she actually took my hand and made me hold hers. I wasn't mad, I'm just saying, but I remember all that stuff, right? There's something about falling in love. Now, falling in love and being in love and learning to love and choosing to love are all different parts. Uh, Not simply talking about a crush, but there is something about that initial moment and the journey of love that do go hand in hand. At TLC, we say that we are a multiplying church helping the next generation fall in love with Jesus. Because when that happens, we create better futures. Futures in the now and futures in eternity. And so we started off our series, we will, talking about our mission statement three weeks ago, reminding ourselves of the sacrifice and difficulty that it's going to take when we plant our first church. God expects his church to multiply. He expects us to multiply our faith in the lives of others, to raise up leaders, disciples, and send them out to plant more culture-creating churches. That's a calling God's placed on us. But we also reminded ourselves that that's going to be really, really hard, and it's going to cost something. It's going to cost something for all of us. And so we need to keep telling ourselves what we're going to do so when the time comes to do it, we don't chicken out. Two weeks ago, or excuse me, last week, we talked about the reality that we have been given a calling by God to go after the next generation. That's what God's called us to do. 
and we want to be about it. It doesn't mean that we don't love every generation. Of course we do. But we want to be about the next generation, not simply so that the next generation gets everything that they want and can grow up to be fat babies that are entitled and just whine about. No, the point is we model now what it looks like to sacrifice for the generation coming behind us so that when that generation comes up, they will sacrifice for the generation behind them and the generation behind them so we continue to pass on our faith as God desires. But what I get to talk about today, to me, is by far the most important thing that we talk about in our mission statement. It's the thing that I'm most passionate about. It is the reason that I became a pastor. It's about falling in love with Jesus. There is nothing I care more about, nothing I want to do more than help you fall in love with Jesus. The million-dollar question, though, is how? I have a responsibility as a pastor, as your pastor, to help you. But the truth is, is I can't make you. A God won't make you. God gives all of us choice. In fact, you don't actually have love without choice. But I know what Jesus has done in my life. And how it's absolutely transformed the trajectory of who I was and where I was going to who I am and what I'm becoming today. And there is nothing that I care about more than helping you understand that. St. John felt the exact same way. In fact, if you open up your Bibles this morning to 1 John chapter 4, John is actually going to help us answer that how question. 1 John chapter 4. Now, as you're turning there, I want to tell you little bit more about my story. When I was five years old, I had grown up in the church. My parents went to church pretty much every week. Uh, I gave my life to Jesus. Now, did I fully understand what that meant? Nope. But as much as a five-year-old could understand, I woke up uh, or got out of bed one evening, went out to my mom, and I was like, she was mad at me, actually. She was like, oh, go back to bed, because I had already gotten up like three or four times already. If you're a parent, you understand this. She's like, go back to bed. And I was like, but I want to accept Jesus. And she's like, ah, okay. So we prayed at this nasty brown couch. I still remember it. And I accepted Jesus. But I didn't know really what it meant to love Jesus. I didn't know what it meant to give him my whole heart, my whole life. And God seared um, this particular moment that I'm about to tell you in my mind. Because I was in sixth grade. And up until uh, that time, I was a pretty shy kid, actually, pretty quiet. <laughs> Probably hard to believe now, but at the time I was. I, I was just a pretty shy kid, and so I, I didn't speak out a whole lot. I had friends, for sure, but um, I was a pretty, like, tame kid. Sixth grade, Mrs. Gatewood's class, Walker Elementary. I can still remember it in my mind. There's a row of desks right here, close to the wall, uh, a Against the wall was some shelves and a, a ledge, a countertop that ran along the side of it. Some of my friends were sitting on that countertop. Some were sitting in this row of chairs where I was at. We had just finished lunchtime. We were having this little conversation, and all uh, uh, of a sudden, I don't even remember what we were talking about, but I swore. I just, I swore. And all my friends stopped what they were doing because there was a bunch of conversations, and they looked at me. And they said, oh, dang, Tori, I didn't know you swear. 
And God has seared this moment in my mind because it was in that moment that I decided I cared more about what my friends thought of me, about whether or not my friends would accept me, about finding identity in what they said about me than I did care about God. I still went to church. I still even did the youth group thing. But there was that moment where they looked at me and said, oh, dang, Tori, I didn't know you swear. And so I decided I want their approval. So I looked at him and I said, well, mother F and effity F, I swear. And I rattled off like four swear words in a row and they all kind of laughed. And that was literally a turning point for me. And for the next five years, that's what I chased. I mean, I grew up in Flint. And in Flint, like it was cool to be hard. It was cool to be tough. It was cool to cuss. It was cool to be, you know, like a bad dude. Like that's what you wanted. That's what you wanted, that respect. And I was like, yo, that's what I'm going to be about. That's what I'm going to get. I wasn't the worst kid in the world, but I had a nasty mind, a nasty mouth, and a nasty heart. And that's what I went after. That's what I pursued. I wanted their approval. I wanted to fit in. I wanted to be accepted. I didn't care what God thought. I didn't care about a life that God might be wanting me to live. I wanted to try to figure it out on my own. Really what I was looking for was love. I was looking for the love of being accepted and being invited into and the friendships and relationships. Now, I understand that that's really hard for you guys to probably understand and relate to my story, right? Because you live in a culture that is so easy to be a Christian in, right? I mean, like, all the cultural issues and moral issues and political issues, they so line up with Scripture that for you guys, this is just not hard. <laughs> now, nah, you're, you're, you're fighting the same battle that I did. You're... you're you're asking the same questions that I'm asking even now. Whose approval am I actually seeking? Where am I going to find my purpose and my identity? Is it going to be in whether or not I, I line up with what's cool and what's hip and whether or not everybody out there is going to accept me? Or am I believing that there is a God who actually loves me and desires a relationship with me and is actually better than anything else that anyone else could ever offer? That's... That's the question that every single one of us is asking. The truth is, in that five years, God never stopped loving me. The five years where I basically gave the middle finger to God and said, I'm going to find love and acceptance and purpose in all these other places, God never stopped loving me and God never stops loving you. That's what's insane about all of this. My dear friends, that's a scandalous love. That's a gift that we need to comprehend. Uh, John actually talks about this. If you have your Bibles open to 1 John 4, we're going to start reading in verse 7. He says, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and proved it by sending his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, 
We also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but we love one another. But if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. Now, there's something that's happening here that's really important for us to grab. John starts off this particular chunk by saying, beloved or dear friends. Uh, this is a big deal. The reason it's a big deal is because John's pastoring, we, uh, he's at the church in Ephesus, but he's probably helping to oversee some of the churches in the whole Asia Minor region that are around Ephesus. And things aren't going great. There's probably been a church split at this point. There's folks that are uh, having errant doctrine that's actually pulling them away from the true Christian faith that John has been teaching them. And like John, like he knows Jesus, man. Like he has experienced Jesus' love. John got to hang out with him. John was one of the disciples. Uh, we think John was probably even Jesus' cousin. Jesus was a fair bit older than John. John was probably one of the youngest disciples, but Jesus loved him. In fact, uh, disciples, or excuse me, people that were disciples of John actually give John the nickname. In fact, we see this all throughout the gospel of John that John also wrote. Uh, they give him the nickname, the disciple whom Jesus loved. There's something about Jesus that he just loved this little dude. Just like his little cuz, like his disciple, and he's younger, and Jesus just loves. He loves is filled with, you know, energy and passion and and Jesus loves him, and John had experienced that love. And now John is trying to, in his older age, pass that love on to help his church understand, like, guys, you have to love each other, but you can't love each other until you recognize how much you've been loved. We see this in how he first addresses them, dear friends, beloved. In fact, John actually uses that phrase six times in this short little letter. Four of those times are actually found right here in chapter 4. Two of them just in that section that we just read. There in verse 7 and verse 11. He wants them to know that they are loved. He wants them to love others out of that. Why? Because verse 9 and 10. Verse 9 and 10 is like the key to this whole chunk. Keep reading with me again. He says, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Uh, Dr. Gary Burge uh, has written a commentary on 1 John. and He says this about this passage, and I think it's so important for us to catch. He says, God's love is what initiated the sending of Jesus. We enjoy not only the love of Christ, but also God's hidden passion for humankind visibly expressed in Jesus Christ. Thus, and check this, we should not see Christ as our only ally, as if Jesus is working to placate an angry God. It is God, the Father himself, who loves us, who is devoted to us. As the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.19, God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ. Um, Dr. Burge is actually going to be teaching here next Sunday. Dr. Burge is uh, on staff at Calvin Seminary. He worked at Wheaton College uh, for 20-some years. Uh, I, I don't think, he'll never tell you this, um, but he's one of the preeminent New Testament scholars in the world today. Um, he's written a number of 
different commentaries. He teaches a class on Romans, and we're going to be spending 10 weeks going through the first 11 chapters of Romans starting next Sunday, and he's kicking it off for us. Uh, God has given us a gift. The dude that I quote as the expert is also the dude who loves us and is going to be here, and that was free, had nothing to do with what I'm talking about this morning. I just wanted to tell y'all because it's amazing. What Dr. Burge helped me recognize is that what John is calling his church to is an understanding of God's love. And this was scandalous in that culture. If we keep reading, we see in verse 11, it says, Dear friends, he's using that again, beloved, since God so loved us. Since God so loved us. Uh, Dr. Burge goes on by saying this. Since God so loved us, there is no condition here. Do you see that? There's no condition. It's not because you did this, God did this. It's not because of how good you were or how well you measure up. Or It's all because of what God has done without condition. He says, John has already affirmed in no uncertain terms that God's activity in Christ has given us indisputable evidence of the Father's love. Therefore, the exhortation to love springs not from any anxiety about losing this love, nor from a threat of God's wrath. In other words, friends, our call to love one another flows out of God's already given love for us. It's not a threat that if we don't do this, we're going to lose God's love. You can't lose God's love. It's not an anxiety of possibly losing it because I'm not good enough. You can't lose it. Because God has already decided to love you. Rather, it is the byproduct of God's loving generosity towards us. God demonstrated his love for us by giving us Christ. He didn't just talk about it. He showed us. He backed it up by forgiving us. He backed it up with the gift of the Spirit. He backed it up with life and life eternal. God doesn't just talk the game. God plays the game. Um, we don't get this fully. I don't. So I'm assuming you probably don't either. Part of it's because we live in like America, right? We don't have totalitarian leaders. Ancient Near East did. There were kings, despots, sultans, rulers, and if you were on their good side, like they would probably hook you up. You would be blessed. Like your things would go well for you. But if you happened to be on their bad side, like they could do you real harm. They could ruin your business. They could throw you in jail. They could have you killed. They could literally take your children from you, put you in slavery. They understood what an all-powerful God had the potential to do. They'd seen the ugly side. And so when John says that God loved them without them doing anything at all, that was scandalous. How would a God, unless you do X, Y, and Z, God's not going to do that for you. And he's like, no, you don't know God. Let me help you understand what God's actually like. Before you did anything, God loved. This was crazy to the rest of the readers. Uh, keep reading with me, verse 13. He said, this is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He's given us his spirit. 
And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them, and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we're like Jesus. There's no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. Let me give you a quick rundown of what John is saying here. In verse 13, he reminds us that God demonstrated his love by giving us the gift of his spirit. God himself comes and indwells Christians. God himself comes and indwells anyone who's willing to accept Christ. He links himself forever with our messed up selves. Crazy. Verse 16, we're reminded that God's love for us is knowable and reliable. Look, friends, some of you have grown up in church, and you've never had an experience of love like I'm talking about. You know stuff. You've been around stuff. But this concept of a loving God, one who loves you so much, no matter what you do and who you are, that he still loves you, like that feels scandalous to your soul right now. And what John wanted to remind us is that God's love is not just knowable, it's also reliable. If you've never known that love, then there is something that you are missing about a faith in Jesus. But not only is his, known, uh, his love known, his love is reliable. Verse 18, we're reminded that God's love for us, allows us to overcome fear. Verse 19, we're reminded that God first loved us, which is how we then can love others. Our love for God doesn't flow out of something that we conjure up. It's simply because we can't help it when we realize what he's done for us. Uh, what's the most famous verse that John has ever written? A hint, it's not in 1 John. Yeah, that's exactly right. Everybody knows it. John 3.16, you see that crazy dude holding up a sign in the end zone. Not right now because can't nobody be at football games. But when they do, right? John 3.16, man, is out there with this John 3.16, right? You even got wrestler, Austin 3.16, who literally changed his name so that he could connect himself with this John 3.16. What does it say? For God so loved. God so loved. God so loved the world. That's you and me. God so loved the world that he was willing to give his one and only son that whoever believes in him won't perish but will have everlasting life. God so loved. Look, friends, this morning you need to know something. God loves you. Not because of what you've done, not because of how good you are, not because of any great thing that you, it's God loves you with your brokenness, with your messed upness, with your past, with what you're sitting in right now, you need to hear this. This is not some fluffy, stupid, feeling kind of love. This is like legit, hardcore God saying, I have chosen to love you 
not because of anything that you've done. In fact, while you were still my enemy, I chose to love you. And I'm not just talking about it, I'm demonstrating it. I'm giving my own son so that you have the potential to choose to love me in return. God never makes us love him. He won't make you love him today. I can't make you love him. But the more that we begin to understand his overwhelming, unending, deep, passionate love for us, the more we just can't help but find ourselves loving God and others in return. Our love always flows from his love. You want to know where John learned about this love? Why John could say these things? John learned it from the very mouth of Jesus. Uh, John was there in Luke 15. Flip over there to our last passage today. John was there in Luke 15 when Jesus is hanging out with some sinners. The sinners actually were seeking Jesus out because Jesus was a safe place for sinners to be. And the Pharisees see it. The Pharisees are like, look at Jesus hanging out with all those nasty people. And Jesus then, in Luke 15, shares this story, famous story. Verse 4, he says, Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and leaves one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who don't need to. Uh, Jesus said that he was the good shepherd. And now Jesus explains what the good shepherd does. The good shepherd leaves the 99 who are safe and secure to go after the one. Friends, you're the one. I'm the one. Jesus will leave everything for you. Why? Because of his love. He'll climb any mountain. He'll light up any shadow. He'll kick through any wall. He'll tear down any lie that you've been telling yourself that I'm not good enough. I'm not worthy enough. I got too much stuff back here. I'm not sure I believe it all. He'll tear down anything to come and find you. That's what he does. You know why John could write that? Because John was sitting there listening to Jesus explain what kind of love he has for us. Jesus wasn't content, though, just to give one little story. Then he gives another one. He talks about a woman who loses a coin, and she lights a lamp. And she takes that lamp to every shadow in her house and lights it up until she finds that coin, and then she celebrates. And then Jesus tells probably one of the most famous parables that he's ever shared, which is the parable of the prodigal son. About a son who goes to his father and says to his father, Hey, Dad, uh, I wish you were dead. But since you're not, I'd really love my part of the inheritance. So uh, would you mind selling off whatever you need to sell off and give it to me? Because I don't like you or our family or what you provide. I think I can provide something better for myself. So would you please do that? Now, uh, we, that's like shocking for our ears to hear, but way more shocking in the ancient Near East. Because the ancient Near East has a culture of shame and honor. And what this son is doing is so countercultural and shameful. And the fact that the dad actually agrees to do this is also shameful. He lets him go. And the son, of course, as you know the story, goes off to a distant land and he squanders all of his money 
on crazy living. He's trying everything, anything that's possible. He's down for it. He's got all kinds of friends when the money's there, but when the money runs out, he realizes that his friends never really cared about him, and a famine hits the land, and he's got nowhere to go and nothing to eat, and he's starving to death, and he thinks to himself, man, if I could just be like a servant in my dad's house, then at least I could have a roof over my head. At least then maybe I can have some food. And so he decides, I'm going to go back and I'm going to tell my dad, I blew it. I'm not your son. I know what I did. I'm sorry. Would you just make me a a servant? Take me on as just a hired servant. We pick up the story in verse 18. It says, I will set out and go back to my father. This is the prodigal son. And say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion, love for him. Sorry. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven, against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And before the son can even get all of it out, father cuts him off. It says, but the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead And is alive again, he was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. John understood the love that the Father has for us. It was shameful for a grown man to hike up his robe and run. The Father doesn't care. The father scanning the horizon, and as soon as his kids turn back to him, he hikes up the robes and he runs. And before the son can even get his whole apology out, the father has forgiven and begins to bless and celebrate his child. That's the kind of love. That's why John says what he says. He's like, I know what the father is like. And friends, My job as your pastor, the thing that wakes me up in the morning, that makes me passionate, that still makes me feel like I won the lottery to be a pastor, is this, to tell you how much God loves you and to remind myself, oh my goodness, I need to be reminded of this, how much God loves me and you. And if you understand that, man, if you would get it, if you would really truly get it, it would change everything. It it changes everything. Because when you understand that kind of love that God has for you, you can't help but begin to love him in return. And the overflow of his love spills out into the people around you. And friends, that's that's the kind of church that I want to be about. That's the kind of church that I want to help create. and, And I can't do it alone. I need you. I need you to remind me of God's love. I need you to... To show it and live it and love one another because you're so filled up with the gratitude that you've experienced from God's love yourself. Now, this doesn't remove 
God's awesomeness. This doesn't remove God's holiness. We still have an awe of who he is. He is other than us, different than us. But God's love compels him to move towards you and I. And friends, that's scandalous. So today, um, I just want to acknowledge that for the last few months, man, I've wrestled with this. I struggled all week with this message. That was hard for me to write, partly because I just haven't felt like I've loved God the way that I want to, the way that I feel like he deserves. The last few months, man, COVID, all this, like, it's been hard. And I've been saying, God, I don't feel it the way that I used to feel it. God, help me. Help me feel it again. Help me be about it again, God. I know that feelings grow and they change. Like, love shifts. It matures. It deepens. It shows itself through obedience. God, help me. God, I want that again. And I want that for our church to be just, like, whoa, I'm fire. Like, I, Jesus love. Like, it's transforming me. I can't help myself. I want that for me and I want that for you. I think there's some of you in this room right now that maybe, maybe you've even grown up in church. You've been around it, but you've never actually experienced Jesus' love. You've never actually said, I, Jesus, I invite you. Yeah, maybe you've said like mentally you've believed, right? But you've never actually had something in your heart where you're like, Jesus, I want that. I trust you. I give you my life. And if that's you, if that's you online right now, I'm going to pray. And if you've never received Christ, if you've never experienced his overwhelming love, then I want to invite you to receive Jesus today. If you've never prayed to receive Christ, this is your first time. I want you to just bow your heads, everybody. Just bow your uh, heads, close your eyes, and I'm going to pray. And if that's you, I just want you to pray this prayer with me. Dear Jesus, I invite you into my life. God, I've been looking for purpose. I've been looking for acceptance. I've been looking for love in all these other places. Today, I want to find it in you. Jesus, I believe in your death and your resurrection. I accept the gift of eternal life. Come into my life. Begin to transform me. I give you permission. Today, I believe. Today, I give myself to you. If that was you, I just want to know, um, if you prayed that prayer for the first time today to receive Christ, I want to know, so would you raise your hand just so that I can see it? Let me know. If you're online and you prayed to receive Christ today, I want you to just drop us a little note. We want to reach out to you. Now, there's a whole bunch of us in this room and uh, I got to believe that some of us, some of us have been feeling uh, what I've been feeling the last few months. Like my love for God has just grown a little colder than I'd like to acknowledge. Maybe for you it hasn't been just a couple of months. Maybe this has been a number of years where you're just like, you're going through the motions because you know you're supposed to, but your love for Christ is just, it's just grown cold and you want to restart. You want to recommit yourself 
to say, you know what, I'm not going to look to the world to give me approval, to tell me what to think or how to act or so that they will somehow think I'm cool. But today I'm going to find my identity in Jesus. I'm coming back. I'm recommitting myself to his love for me. If that's you, I want to pray for you. If, if that's a prayer that you need, would you just raise your hand so I can see it and I can know to pray for you? Yes, 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 yes. All right, let me pray for you. Father God, you see these hands. God, you know these hearts. God, you know my heart. God, I don't want to just talk about it. I want to be about it, God. We want to know your love. And so today we recommit ourselves. We recommit ourselves. God, I pray for these folks that raised their hand and maybe some others that wanted to, but just were a little bit too afraid to. God, to say we are going to stand up for you to, to recognize your love for us and lean into it. God, we thank you that you are a God who pursues us you're a God who will climb any mountain and light up any shadow. You'll kick down any wall. You'll tear down any lie because of your love for us. You leave the 99 and go after us. God, that's who you are. And God, the more we recognize your love, the more we understand who you are. And we just fall down in awe and say, thank you. Thank you. We can't help but praise you. We can't help but love you. And that love overflows in our lives to those around us. God, let us be a church that overflows with love because we know who you are. Jesus, thank you for being willing to come to this earth and die a painful death to pay the penalty that we all deserve so that we can have life and life to the full. Father, thank you that you are a God of love let us know you more and more. Spirit, burn this into our hearts and our minds today. In Jesus' name we pray.